0: if you would, to Luke 24. It is on page 729 of the Red Bibles in your chairs. Luke 24 is a special passage in Scripture. Only Mark and Luke cover the ascension, and they both, in Mark 16 and here in Luke 24, both cover the resurrection and the ascension in the same passage. Luke gets a gold star, he covers the ascension again in Acts 1. John and Matthew are silent on the ascension. Our passage, these 22 verses nestled here in Luke, are special. Even though they have some high company, the resurrection and the ascension, these verses, this account of Emmaus, gets the majority of the text. Mark is very abbreviated. Just two men on a road in the country and Christ appeared to them. But Luke here gives us some detail. In fact, this is the greatest detail of any event after the resurrection. So join with me reading here in verse 13 of Luke 24. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. And yes, certain women in our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find His body. And they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said He was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, and while he opened Scripture to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. This is the word of God, and what do we know about the word of God? Lord, indeed, your word endures forever. We pray to you to show us Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So I did want to take just a second and check in with you. Um, Are you nervous or is it just me? I spent this past several months actually looking at sermon, how to do a sermon, reading books, listening to things. One of the things that was of interest to me is it said the congregations today only can withstand about 20 minutes of a sermon. We do a little bit longer here, and the, uh, the book said you can go longer than 20 minutes. You can go 30, you can go 40, you can go an hour, but it better feel like 20 minutes. So, um, and it, the next thing I learned was that rookies come way over-prepared. And I've got several sheets of paper here. So, <laughs> so let me repeat, are you nervous? <laughs> now that we're sufficiently all nervous, let's look at the scripture. This is not necessarily a sermon about the Great Commission, but it is a um, It is a special passage that does not stand alone, this travelers to Emmaus. We must think a little bit about the resurrection and about the ascension. And what we know about the ascension is usually there's this deliverance of the Great Commission. I like to call it the mission of Christ. What we normally go to is uh, Matthew 28 to see the Great Commission, but that's not the ascension. It's clear from Matthew 28, 16 that that deliverance of the commission, Christ's mission, was given to the disciples in Galilee. Okay? And it's in Luke you have similar words, the same mark, the same account of the ascension. So the great commission as we know it is given at least twice by Christ in these 40 days that he appears on earth in his resurrected form. So it's important. It has importance. Why we call it the Great Commission, the mission of Christ. The second thing that adds importance to the great mission given to us by Christ is that it's really a continuation of things that were in the Old Covenant. In Genesis, Adam is told to multiply and subdue. Again, Noah is told to be fruitful, multiply, subdue. And the New Testament way of saying that is multiply and disciple so in a more fuller way christ is pointing to an old testament an old covenant thing and making it in a way more spiritual as a natural as it should be to fulfill that seemed like a simple command to me in the old testament be fruitful and subdue okay that i can do right well the guys at Babel messed it up but it should be somewhat as natural for us today to go, multiply, and disciple. It should be somewhat as natural for a believer. But we, sometimes in the church, we put undue pressure on ourselves. You know, if the, we look at the, the challenge of the commission of Christ and we say, well, you know, if it's not to the ends of the earth, if it's not to the tribes in the jungle, then it doesn't have this Great Commission feel to it. If we look internally, if we look at the church itself, we're being too inwardly focused. We're, we don't have that mission. It's my hope that the passage that we look at today, which is a critical passage in regard to that commission, will maybe help us take rest in the mission the way we see Christ taking rest, and that we can maybe get some insight on what his intention is for us to fulfill his mission. Okay? How's it going to do that? Well, we're going to do two things. We're going to look at the example that we have in Christ that we should follow, and we're going to look at the two travelers. We're going to see how the two travelers might be symbols or examples of us in our day and time, and how we may need to adjust our attitudes based on what we see of us and them. Okay? All right. So let's start with the two men. The two men are sort of obscure. We don't know much about them. We know one of them's name is Cleopas, in verse 18. The other fellow's name, we never learn his name. There's nothing beforehand that we would know much about these fellows in specifics, And there's nothing afterward that we would know them specifically. They may be a part of a group that's mentioned. But they're just your common guys walking down this road. They're traveling the same day. What day is this day? This is resurrection day. Verses 1 through 12 had the resurrection morning in the account of that. So this is probably resurrection afternoon and even into the evening, the same day. And they're traveling to a village that's located about seven miles away, several hours away. They're going by foot. They are told, we are told that they are two of them. Now this is where I really get tongue-tied when I'm practicing. But who are they them of? They are the them of the rest. In verse 9, you have the 11 and the rest. So they, these two men are actually part of the followers of Christ. They are maybe, you could say they're the first church. They are not the 11, but they are the of them who are the 11 and the rest in verse 9. Make sense? Good. Okay. And they are talking together of things which has happened. Now, how far in the past, when did they come into the ministry of Christ, this three-year ministry that Christ had is not clear. That had to be a whirlwind of events, three years with Christ. I mean, Brenda and I talked, well, can you believe that was four years ago, three years ago? I mean, it happens like this, right? Can you imagine being on the ministry of Christ three years? Probably went by in a flash. Where they joined that, we don't know, but they're they're talking of things. Probably was more like what may have happened just in the past week. Last Sunday for them was the triumphal entry. Thursday was the Last Supper. By Thursday night, Christ was arrested just four days ago. By Friday morning, 9 o'clock, Christ is on the cross just three days ago. Forty-five hours ago, for these two men, Christ delivered up his spirit. By Friday night, Christ is in the tomb. Saturday, for these two guys, was a day of rest. That's why it was such a rush to get Christ into the tomb, so nobody worked on Saturday. And Sunday morning, they're hearing of these crazy things. These women have gone to the grave, and the tomb is empty. And besides that, they're hearing that there's angels at the tomb saying Christ has risen. And they don't know that Christ has actually appeared to a couple of women. That information they don't have. But they do know that a couple of guys that are two of the main dudes, Peter and John, have verified it's true what the women said. And they are a little amazed about this information. Now, there's some significant detail to what they had to be discussing, not only here on this road, but with the rest, since Friday that Christ died. Luke doesn't bring this out at all, but Matthew does. And it's information for us, and I think it's important. First of all, you imagine being there, Christ is on the cross, he dies, you're going to go back to what happened, what happened in the ministry. Well, if you would think back, what is the last thing that Christ said to us? Well, after they had finished the supper, Matthew 26 says they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, usually when we go to this passage, we're we're concentrating on the failure of the disciples. But listen to these words. Here's what Christ says. It says, they, went, they sung a hymn. They went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I will be struck. You will be scattered. I will raise and I will be waiting for you in Galilee. And the angels who appear to these women, resurrection morning, just three days later, they come to these women, Matthew 28, and they say to the women, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, behold, I have told you. And the women went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to the disciples and brought them this word. These are the words on which they're discussing. They've discussed it in Jerusalem. They're discussing it on the road. And so we have, it's probably subtitled there in your Bible, probably naturally we have this passage titled The Road to Galilee. Oh, wait. Know it, the road to Emmaus. Well, let me draw you a map. We have the district of Judea here in the south. Jerusalem is in Judea, the setting of our story. We have Samaria north of that, and then Galilee north of that. So quite naturally, we should be heading on this road that's north and south to meet Christ. That's where he's going to be. That's where he said he would be at. True, we don't exactly know where Emmaus was, but if you look in the back of your Bible, time of Christ, you will see that the geographers are putting the town to the west. I practiced on this. Is that west? <laughs> he put them seven miles to the west. Now, we can't read too too much into here, but The worst-case scenario is these guys have quit, and they're gone. I think we probably have to give them more benefit than that doubt. But the fact is, they've left their brothers and sisters at this critical time, at this critical news, and they're out of town. Maybe they're making themselves busy. Maybe they've got something more important to do than figure out why this tomb is empty. But for whatever the reason, they're heading to Galilee, to Emmaus, rather than Galilee. Now let's look at Christ. Verse 16 says, But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. Oh, Mr. Rookie Preacher, you're mistaken. That's about the two men, not Christ. No, Christ has restrained their eyes. And I think we have to notice that no one else that Christ appears to during these 40 days of transformation, on his way to see the Father, does he restrain eyes. No one else receives restrained eyes. Only these two fellows. Now it's true, a few people are a little slow to recognize him. But it quickly happens, the recognitions that come a little slow. And nowhere in those texts, Mary Magdalene for instance, does it say their eyes are restrained. Only these two fellows. So we must ask ourselves why. Why would these fellows' eyes be restrained? Well, I think there's two answers to that question. First of all, Christ wants to act in a way as an example to us here in this passage. Oh, well, that's brilliant, Mr. Rookie Preacher. We're always, Christ is always the example, right? But a lot of times Christ does things we can't do. When he rubs mud on the man's eyes and tells the, eye, the man to go wash his eyes and the man sees, We can be great mud rubbers, but probably when he washes his eyes, he's not going to see. When Christ yells a man's name into a tomb and the man walks out, we could probably yell names until we're hoarse and that can't happen. But the way he demonstrates here, we can do. And thus it's one of the reasons for the passage, for him to be an example to us, to show us how he wants us to perform his great mission. Secondly, he restrains their eyes because what's at the core of this is exactly how he wants to be revealed by us to others. If he had not restrained their eyes, they would have seen his hands. They would have seen his side. But acting in the example, and the very point being, it's how Christ is revealed is why he's restraining eyes. Got that? So, we have to ask ourselves throughout this passage, what is Christ doing, what is he not doing, and what is he saying? One of the things that he is doing, it says, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near to them and went with them. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is that that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Jesus draws near to them and goes with them. Is that something we can do? Can we find our brothers who may and sisters who may be on this road heading east instead of heading north? and find them and go with them and draw near to them and when we do find them can we show concern to them what is this you're talking about Now I know Marty has his evangelism class but this isn't higher math here hey brother and sister down this road can I go with you what you talking about secondly He makes himself not busy. This is the most important day in human history. Resurrection Day. Christ is going to spend several hours, perhaps the entire afternoon, and into the evening with these two fellows. Now, if they had invited me... To be on the strategic planning team? I can just see me talking here and say, okay, if you want to appear to your loved ones first and kind of show them whatever, but I, here's what we're doing next, Christ. We're, what I want you to do next is I want you to appear to the two high priests in the Sanhedrin and say, hey, looky here, guys. This would make quite an impact, world mission for the Jews. What if that was in their Torah? Right? That's a better plan. And then, when you get done with that, I think you should go see Pilate in the very courtroom that you were tried in. Hey, Pilate, remember me? Remember these nail holes? Remember these lashes on my back? These marks on my head? Oh, and by the way, that hand washing thing? That's not going to cut it. (laughs) And then, you seem to have this disappearing, reappearing thing you can do now. And you travel pretty quick now. I think you should go all over the world And just make a brief appearance, tell your story, and then when we get internet and all those things that you're going to let us invent later on, we'll link all this together, that you had this grand appearance all over the world. What a great plan. Yeah. And not only does he not do that this day, he doesn't do it for the next 40 days. In fact, he hasn't done it yet today. It's not his mission. Christ is relaxing and perfectly comfortable in his mission and the way it will be performed. He is saying to us, Where are my sheep? What road are they on? Go find them. They're wandering away. Hey, that's the way you shepherd, right? Over here. Da-da-da-da-da. Over here. Da-da-da. Through the gate. There's the gate right there. Through the gate. Through the gate. These are two guys wandered off. That's the way he wants us to do it. If you want to understand and obey my mission, then understand why I'm on this road heading to Emmaus. That's what he's saying to us. He wants us to know that even though this is the most glorious and joyous day in history, that these two guys are not only going down the wrong road, they're sad. And so things are wrong in a whole lot of places, in their heads, in their minds, in their hearts. They're walking and they're sad. He's observing them. Do you have close brothers and sisters in the faith who may be on that wrong road, who may be, just can't seem to find what's joyous in the gospel. They're down and out. Can you not see that we have this glorious ability to fulfill this great commission right here, right here? Then the two men Talk to Christ as he's asked them, and they said, are you the only one who doesn't know all the events that have happened here these past few days? Have have you ever said anything stupid? (laughs) I mean, Jesus is the only one who knows the full extent of everything that has happened the past few days. These guys are going to prove Further, that they have absolutely no clue what has happened. He knows eternally, spiritually, heavenly, everything that has happened. And yet, he stays silent. What things, he asks. And they say to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed and in word before God and before men. They have a misconception of his mightiness. How could they understand the fullness of these words of his might and yet be on the road heading east instead of running on the road to Galilee to meet Christ? They have let the understanding of what who Christ is and the mission that Christ might have for them slip by the way because they're on The wrong road. Do we know people like that within the church? They've lost faith in his ability to perform as God. And they go on. And how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. These guys have all the current information. They don't have Fox News, they don't have internet, they don't have Twitter, but they know it, they know the events. And they've been swallowed up by the politics and the events of the day. And it swallowed them whole. And we do the same thing. We get caught up in these events and it swallows us whole. And then they say, But we were hoping it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Have you ever said anything stupid? They were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Man, if Christ ever, I think, wanted to flash him a little nail hole in the hand right now, I think it would be it. Come on. He's the Redeemer. He's hours out of the tomb. He has performed redemption, atonement in full, and yet they are expressing their lost hope. And that he could possibly be the redeemer. Then they go on, and I think, confess to us that things are just a little too hot in the kitchen. There's an empty tomb. There's stories of raising from the dead, things are a little hot in the kitchen. We need some time. The, the message has become too radical. It is a radical message, and it's a radical message that we're to cling to and not run. They are astonished with it, but not enough to stick around. The victory that Christ has just accomplished does not look like victory to them. They're out of town. Finally, Christ speaks with substance, and he says to them, You fools and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He speaks a little roughly, yet he shows them with tender care All the scripture. He says it. He shows it. He does it. And he spends four hours plus with them on resurrection afternoon. The men have foolish and slow hearts. They found all sorts of ways to do anything but perhaps look at scripture. But it's exactly where Christ took them. So fascinated are they of what they're hearing from him, they invite him in for dinner to stay with them the night. And he agrees. He breaks bread with them. And finally, in verse 31, their eyes are open and they know him, but he vanishes from their sight. And they say to one another Did not our heart burn within us while he? talked with us on the road, and while He opened Scripture to us, not once He was revealed to them in verse 31, when we were walking on the road, our hearts burned. As He showed us the Scriptures, our hearts burned. Jesus closed their eyes to recognizing Him, but opened their heart to see Him in His Word as an example to us. Oh, don't you wish we had the list of what Christ had said. Man, we would be so, oh, it's in your lap. (laughs) It's in your hand. All the scriptures, he said. And we have even more than that today. We have the New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit. We have all this at our hand. And are we refusing to go to Galilee as he's told us to? The turning point of the story is that they do rise that very hour. That very hour they rise. They're no longer slow of heart. They're no longer sad. That very hour they return to Jerusalem. They're no longer running away but back to their brethren with full hearts. They're no longer foolish. They're going to declare the Lord is risen. And they're no longer without understanding. They're going to say the Lord is known to them. Just like a weightlifter, though, lifts those weights and gets that burn, we must exercise here. Here we said, remember, the Great Commission, one of the ways we know its importance because of its repetition, right? Well, there's two verses here in Luke 24. You can look at them there verse 44. Verse 44 and 45, we don't exactly know the timetable of those two verses. We know that 1 through 12 were the morning of the resurrection. We know 46 is 40 40 days later at the ascension. We know the afternoon and evening which stops at verse 43. Okay? So 44 is kind of a linking verse. He said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. There you go. He's saying again, we can't deny it. We must heed it. Not all is well in the church. We can only handle 20 minutes of a sermon. Maybe 30 here. Oh, we're special. Oh, wait a minute. If, you, um, if 30 minutes is good for you for the whole week, okay. Okay. If you look up and down your row there, there may be most, some of the rows have about 10 people in them. If you up and down that road, seven of those people didn't come to Sunday school this morning. We only have about a 30% attendance to Sunday school. There's six or seven kids Sunday school going on down there, children Sunday school. There's two or three youth Sunday schools going on. There's three adult Sunday school class. And only people that are concerned about it is about 30% of you really we cannot ignore the the location and the method that he's told us to find I'm going to be here he's telling us just like he told the disciple he was going to be in Galilee I'm here we must search for him last week we learned about the house that was built on the surface and was weak but the strong house was built on the rock but where was the rock under the dirt We've got to dig for that. Get that burn in our hearts. You have to work for it. It is of grace, and it's grace that it's there. But Christ is saying, Search for me in all of Scripture. Proverbs says, If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden tre- treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, and find the knowledge of God. Dr. McGee read the Ephesians passage about the church being a part in this journey. He gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints. Why? For the work of the ministry. Why? For the edifying of the body of the Christ. How long do we have to do it Till you you got the unity of the faith? How long do we have to do it? Till you come to the knowledge of the Son of God. How long do we have to do it? Till you're a perfect man. How long do we have to do it? Until you reach the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. And then you can stop, but you won't want to. (laughs) I'll end with this the story. So I've been a son all my life. Some of y'all have been sons your whole life too, right? I've had 30 years, I've had sons, 30 years plus, I've had sons and daughters, had five sons. I've had a ministry to fathers and their sons for 20 years. I've just been kind of weird events. I've been blessed to have to, or for whatever reason, observe this father and son relationship. And I've had lifetime friends that I've known so long that I know their fathers almost as well as I know their sons kind of unusual. Oh, there was one relationship. I've known hundreds of these relationships. There was one relationship that did stick out above the rest. And a few years ago, my friend, he was a lifelong friend, and it was a few years ago his father died. And I was reminded at the funeral that this was a special relationship of all of the ones that I observed. And so I called my friend after the funeral and said, can I come and see you? And he said, sure. And so I went to see him with two goals in mind. One was to comfort him in his loss. But the other, I must admit, was a bit selfish. I wanted to know what was the trick that his dad had used to cultivate this relationship. So we met for a while, and I finally just came out with it. You know, you had... Just like I'm telling you, you had the most special relationship with your father, your dad. Ha, what did your dad do to cultivated that relationship? And without hesitation, my friend looked at me. He said, Lee, I pursued my dad. I was somewhat shocked. It took me back. You mean it wasn't the dad's pursuit of the son? It was the son's pursuit of the day. I'm not saying that God hasn't pursued us. He's given his only begotten son, right? But I'm saying to you, as Christ is saying to you, meet him in Galilee. Shed your slow and foolish heart. Come to him in all of his fullness, in all of the scripture, with this body knitted together in love. Come with us on this road to Galilee to meet Christ. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do next. (laughs) Let's pray. That's a good idea, right? (laughs) Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word. We ask that you would always show us Jesus. You would work past the the preacher and the man, and you would show us Christ from your word in all his fullness. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.